Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, verses 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And may the Lord bless that reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Lord, we are so blessed that your spirit is here in our midst, that he captures our mind and illuminates our minds. He sharpens them. He quickens us to your presence that he, he, he helps us understand this, your word. Help us, Lord, to realize the, today as we read this, as we talk about it, what a privilege we have to be able to read these words, to read those words, my Lord, and know that they refer to you, to know you in this way, and that you continue to reveal yourself to us in, in even deeper meaning and deeper ways as we study your word. So, Lord, bless us as we, as we turn to this word. Give us focus, especially those at home, so that they won't be distracted, so that we can truly enjoy this word together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have heard, and I'm sure you have heard uh, many times, of the, the meeting of the minds, that expression, the meeting of the minds. Usually what it talks about is some very big, great, lofty thinkers or the great intellects who are gathering together for whatever reason to solve some kind of problem, to figure out a puzzle, sometimes with worldwide significance. But we're not going to talk about the meeting of the minds this morning. Rather, we're going to talk about the meeting of the wombs as two women with two extraordinary babies in their wombs meet each other and the Holy Spirit is right there and we have an extraordinary reaction out of the baby in Elizabeth's womb and we look at the the work of the Holy Spirit and we just enjoy this beautiful story because that's what it is. This is just a delightful story that we have. It, it, It is a window into a pristine moment in redemption history, and we're also going to enjoy learning about Mary's faith and Elizabeth's faith and how that is manifest in the way that they are reacting here. And then finally, we're just going to kind of slide into the taking of the Lord's Supper because some of the things that are mentioned here in this text are really going to lend themselves to, to our reverently taking that Lord's Supper. So, Since we're going to look at this as a story, let's just remind ourselves of where we are in that story. As you remember, Zechariah the priest is in Jerusalem and he is performing his priestly duties when the angel Gabriel tells him that he is going to have a son, even though he and his wife are both past the age of childbearing and his wife has been barren all of her life. He didn't believe the angel and therefore he was stricken mute for the time of her pregnancy. But of course, we know that that baby is the Elijah to come. He is the forerunner, the herald of the Christ. We will know him as John the Baptist. Well, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Zechariah goes home and his wife becomes pregnant. And then the story just kind of goes silent for about five months. She hides herself, uh, really doesn't get out in public, and then picks back up in the sixth month. Because now, instead of Jerusalem, we are in Nazareth of Galilee, sort of the other side of the tracks. And instead of a priest, it is a peasant girl 
quarrel with, other than her own really beautiful nature. Um, she really has no merit to be called or to be uh, assigned this great task that the angel is going to give to her. And of course, the angel stuns her by saying that even though you're a virgin, I know that you're betrothed to the town carpenter, but that doesn't matter. You're going to have a child, and he's not going to be of earthly father. He's going to be by the Holy Spirit. And of course, she asks the angel, my goodness, how on earth is that going to happen? And the Holy Spirit, I mean, the angel tells her that she will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, that it will be the power of God Most High, and that her son will be great. He will be the son of God Most High. He will be uh, the, uh, the heir of the throne of David and the ruler over all God's people forever and ever and ever. And then we saw that Mary responded to that news with humble and obedient servanthood. I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me as you said. May it be the word of God. I will be obedient and humble. And that's where we left our story last week. Now let's pick it up right there. Mary is still in Nazareth and... We don't know when, but she has by this time been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, in those days is just an arbitrary designation of time, and it could be, you know, any, any length there, but the fact that she did this in haste kind of leads us to, to figure out that it, this was close after the overshadowing. We don't know how close. I mean, a girl like that just didn't pick up and move to run, run to, to uh, south of Jerusalem to the hill country of Judah. I mean, ar- I mean arrangements had to be made. So we're going to imagine that she's probably pretty close to her first month by the time that she gets there. And when it says that she arose, that just means that she kind of hurriedly, with haste, got herself ready so that she could make this trip. Now, notice that it says she did all of this in haste. And the question arises, well, why? What's the rush? I mean, you're, she's obviously not letting any grass grow under her feet. She quickly, as quickly as she can put it together, she takes off for um, the hill country of Judah. Well, there are a lot of ideas about this. Some people think it's because she was so panicked over her pregnancy. She didn't want anyone in Nazareth to know. So she went to uh, Judah so that she wouldn't uh, be showing. But that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because later on, we're going to read that after three months, when she really would have been showing, she went back home again. So that, that, that doesn't hold any water. Another theory is that she just couldn't wait to congratulate Elizabeth. Well, again, I'm sure she wanted to congratulate Elizabeth, but I'm not sure that would have brought about her haste. Now, many people think that the reason that she was so hastily going on this, uh, uh, this journey was because she wanted affirmation of what the angel had said to her. She wanted to, remember the angel said, your relative Elizabeth is with child in her old age. And so because she wanted to know whether it was true or not, she rushed down there. Now, some very bright people like John Galvin, uh, um, pretty much they think that's the reason for the haste. But once again, I just don't pick that up in this whole passage. I, I, I see an, an abiding faith in Mary, not one that required affirmation uh, from a sign. The reason I think that she goes down there is, is a very human reason. I mean, just imagine that you're Mary. I mean, just try to put yourself in her shoes, whether you're a man or a woman. Try to imagine what it would be like to be a teenage girl, probably 13, 14 years old, in rural Israel where they stone women for adultery, and all of a sudden you're pregnant. She's been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Now, who on earth are you going to talk to? Who are you going to confide with? Who are you going to see if you can process this amazing thing that has just occurred to you? You can't tell your parents. They would flip. You're not going to be able to tell Joseph either. 
and certainly not her friends. There's one woman on earth that Mary can actually talk to and say, an angel appeared to me and I have been made pregnant by the work of the Holy Spirit that would believe her, and that, of course, was Elizabeth. So that's the reason, at least in my mind, that she hastily prepared and went down to the hill country of Judah. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what town this is, but usually the hill country of Judah, it would be south of Jerusalem in the area of Hebron. Now, that was a very arduous trip for a young girl to take in those days. Uh, As the crow flies between Nazareth and and Hebron is about 80 miles. It would take the better part of a week because you've got to circumvent mountains over rough terrain. Everything she ate, she'd have to carry on her back, sleeping in the open, having to carry her own water. That was a very tough trip for her to have to make, and... She wouldn't have been able to go alone. They didn't do that in those days. So we have no indication that her family was with her. So probably she had to team up with a caravan that was going then. That's the way that they traveled in those days, in groups for safety from bandits on the road. So either a a relative that was headed down there or at least someone that the family knew in order for Mary to be able to make that trip. But regardless of how this came about, ultimately she ends up at the house of Zechariah. Look in verse 40. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, that little detail at the beginning of that verse, and she entered the house of Zechariah. Uh, I think that Luke includes that to pinpoint this pristine moment in time. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful moment. This is something that is is unique in all of history. And so therefore, I think Luke is just kind of setting it apart for us so that we will add a little bit of drama to it, if you will. She enters into the house of Zechariah. And at that moment is when this greeting would occur. Now, Most of us would look at that phrase, and she greeted Elizabeth, and we would say, okay, you know, so she said, hello, Elizabeth, how you doing? Shalom, Elizabeth, maybe, Uh, embraced each other and had a nice warm greeting with each other. But those who know um, the way that the Hebrews lived in those days would make exception to that. In other words, the way that Luke says, and it's said several times, when I heard your greeting, um, it, it, it would be a formal greeting, that the Hebrews had a very formal way of greeting each other. In other words, there wouldn't have been the Shalom Elizabeth and hugs and let's talk about, I've got such great news to, to tell you. No, it would have been a protocol. They would have had to have sort of stood off from each other and then Mary would have told Elizabeth everything that was going on in her family and in in Nazareth, and then Elizabeth would have had to tell her everything that was going on with her and Zechariah, and then after that formal greeting, then they could get a little bit more intimate. Very similar, a good example of this is found in Exodus, when when Moses greets his father-in-law Jethro, it goes like this. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. And then it goes through all of what occurred with Pharaoh and the Exodus and everything up to that point. A very formal greeting. And so, why am I telling you all this? What, what is important about this? Well, I'll, I'll show you as we go through the text. Because when Elizabeth says, when I heard your greeting is when this event occurred. Well, it makes a difference. If there was a long drawn out greeting and Mary explained in great detail everything that happened to Elizabeth, then, I mean, to her and then to Elizabeth, well, maybe it was because of what Mary had said that Elizabeth was going to respond the way she responded and know the things that she knows. But if all that happened was walking in and saying, Shalom, Elizabeth, and boom, this happened, and we know 
It is all the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's really not a solution to which is the better idea because of my culture, because of where I grow up and we don't have those formal um, greetings. I tend to think, and I like the idea of the Holy Spirit being in complete control of this greeting, but I tend to think it was more the Spirit that was working in these two wombs as they meet in this extraordinary epic meeting. Well, anyway, um, that's the that's uh, um, uh, the sort of the setup um, of setting the scene, and now we're going to launch into what is known as Elizabeth's song. Let's read that. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm skipping the 41st verse. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her room. Now you can see what I'm talking about. When she heard the greeting, the baby leaped. Well, was that after a long formal greeting or? Or was that just a, uh, a, a casual greeting? But nonetheless, we, we see that the baby, now John the Baptist, as a six-month fetus, leaps in her womb when, when, when Elizabeth hears the greeting. Now, later on, I'm going to kind of postpone the discussion of, well, how did that happen? How does a six-month-old fetus leap for joy? So we're going to wait until the 44th verse to, to talk about that. But let me at least say this first, because this is what really comes to my mind and my heart when I read this. This is a six-month-old fetus. Now, we're not going to know exactly what happens and how that fetus jumps for joy, but one thing we do know is that in some mysterious way, there's going to be a stimulus from the Holy Spirit that is going to be expressing joy through that six-month fetus. That means that the fetus is a person. That means that he has a soul. That means that he can indeed be impacted by the Holy Spirit in that state far from being just a mass of protoplasm or a wart or a growth on the inside of a mother's womb. Brothers and sisters, we kill millions of babies every year just like this. And now I'm floored. I, I am so floored that we have as a country and so many Christians joined in in this. We've put an administration in the highest office of the land, some of whom actively support abortion. God help us. God forgive us. God bring us revival as we prayed earlier and not the judgment that we so deeply deserve for such a horrific and horrendous act. God forgive his church for standing by and not speaking out against it. That is a person capable of, re, of, of being impacted by the Holy Spirit. Millions upon millions of them are being aborted. Well, it is later in that verse that we, 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 we hear what happens to Elizabeth. She is filled with the Holy Spirit when this occurs, when this greeting occurs and the two wombs meet. She is just filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, for one thing, it's going to sort of set the stage for the song that comes next. Because when someone gets filled with the Holy Spirit in this way, one of the things that, that happens regularly throughout Scripture is that the words that they say after that filling have divine source. They have divine impact. And I think that is the case with Elizabeth. And I think that's how she knows some of the things that she knows. And just to give you some examples, back in Second Samuel, at the end of David's life, David said this, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. David, who the Holy Spirit rushed upon continually. In the New Testament, Peter, we, we learn in the book of Acts, we just read this in our Wednesday night uh, uh, Bible study. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and the people, and, and the rulers of the people and elder, he actually 
shares the gospel and gives an altar call to the Sanhedrin, the same people who sent Jesus to the cross. I mean, he was speaking with boldness and with the words of God. In fact, later on in that same chapter, we see the entire church, the koinonia, doing the same thing in the 31st verse. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so we are seeing Elizabeth filled with that Holy Spirit. And so therefore we can count the song that she is going to sing next to be to have divine import or importance in the words that she speaks. So now let's take a look at that 42nd verse. And really from the 42nd through the 45th verse is uh, is is considered to be the song of Elizabeth. Uh, And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, notice that first phrase, and she exclaimed with a loud voice. Boy, that fits right in what I just said, because that's another one of those sort of key phrases that sort of states that what this loud voice is exclaiming the word of the God, the, uh, the word of God. In other words, this is people who either are speaking to God, crying out to him, or speaking for him. For instance, Isaiah puts it this way, then he who saw cried out, and he continues with a prophetic saying. We read it in the fifth chapter of Revelation. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. So that just gives us more uh, uh, affirmation that indeed Elizabeth is speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit when she goes into this psalm or this song. Now, not everybody calls it a song. Some people call it a, a prayer. Other people call it just an exuberant exhortation. I I think it's a song, and I'm not going to go into the reasons why, some technical reasons to kind of set it apart, but it is the first first of five songs in Luke's nativity narrative. There's this one with Elizabeth, and immediately after this is the much better known one by Mary the Magnificat, and then later on we're going to see Zechariah with his own song, When John the Baptist is Born, and then later on we're going to see the heavens open and the angels sing a song when Jesus is born, and then we're going to see old Simeon in the the temple when he finally sees the Christ child. So so Luke is enriching this narrative with some songs that express the joy of the birth uh, of Christ. And so that is indeed what what Elizabeth is doing. Now notice in this first verse, and then later on in the 45th verse, and actually the um, 43rd verse is kind of wrapped up in it, even though she doesn't use the word. Notice that she uses the word blessed over and over again. Now that word does not mean happy. That word does not mean that she's going to find health and wealth in this world, as the health and wealth preachers would try to make you understand. It is a word that means to be blessed by God, to be under his favor. And we will see that, you know, in Mary's life, she's going to be blessed. And that's what she's going to say is that Mary is blessed, but there's also suffering in that life. So that's the first thing that she says. The first one, she's going to bless Mary, she's going to bless Jesus, and then she's actually going to bless herself. And then she's going to bless in sort of a general sense as we make our way through this song. So the first uh, person, the first blessing is for Mary. She said, blessed are you among women. Now, that's a superlative. That's kind of like a figure of speech in both Hebrew and Aramaic. This Aramaic being the language that they actually spoke in those days. And it's a superlative as if to say, Mary, you are the most blessed woman on the face of the planet. Who, who on earth could be possibly more blessed than you than to be the mother of Christ in the flesh? Now, that just brings up something that we need to, 
we need to understand and look at as reformed believers, we, we tend to be abhorrent of the Roman Catholic idolatry, the horrible heresy that they have built up around the Mary cult. And unfortunately, what happens is we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We, we tend to you know, go the other direction and just diminish any importance that Mary has. We shouldn't do that. This is an extraordinary girl, and God is using her in an extraordinary way. Of all the billions of women who have ever lived, she has been chosen to be the one and I'm not saying it's because of her own merit. I'm certainly not saying it's because she's the queen of heaven or a co-mediator with Christ. What I am saying is that she is a blessed woman, and the fruit of her womb is also blessed. And so we should keep a balance. Uh, I mean, we see her in humility and obedience and servanthood. Uh, we, we should notice an example for us when we see one and not be thrown off by some heretical view that someone else has put forward. So the first thing that she says is, blessed are you among women. Now, once again, I just want to bring this out, that that word blessed does not mean that everything's going to go well for Mary, that everything is going... Can you imagine the suffering that she's going to have to go through? First of all, the stigma of, of what everybody is going to believe about her as far as the birth of this child. Secondly, can you imagine what it would be like to be the mother of Jesus growing up? I mean, the only thing that we learn is that she's going to lose him when he's 12 years old in, in, in the temple and, and, and go through that angst of where on earth is my child, you know? But I would imagine that's the kind of stuff that went on all along. And of course, she's going to be at the foot of the cross watching her son terribly tortured and killed. This is not going to be a bed of roses for, for Mary. So we need to redefine blessing, not in a, a, a modern sense of health and wealth, we need to redefine it as the favor of God and treasure in heaven because that's exactly what the word means. Well, then Elizabeth goes on and blesses the fruit of your womb. Bless the fruit of your womb. Now, that phrase, fruit of your womb, is a familiar phrase in the Old Testament, but this is the only place in the New Testament that you will find it. And it is another one of those sayings that just speaks of God's blessing. And we know that this would have a very special meaning to Elizabeth, who thought she had gone through her whole life and had been barren, and this is God's gift to her. But the psalmist puts it this way, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Quite often you will see the fruit of the womb included in a long list of the blessings that God gives his people, like in Deuteronomy 7. He will love you. He will bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. And it goes on to talk about many more blessings that God has in store for his people. But when I, I read this, I, I can't help but think that not only will this be a blessed child, and of course we know that he is, but he is also the child who will be the blessing to the world. He is the child that God promised Abraham that all the families of the world will be blessed through your offspring. And now that's coming to fulfillment in Mary as she is blessed because of this child I'm coming apart here. Well, she goes on in the 43rd verse after blessing Mary and blessing the child, she's going to speak of her own blessing because she considers herself to be greatly privileged. Look in that 43rd verse and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? A sort of a rhetorical question there. She's not expecting an answer from us. But it is a rhetorical question that also reveals to us 
the nature of Elizabeth. We already know that she's blameless and righteous, that she keeps the statutes of God and follows his commandments. But here we see that she is humble as well. She cannot understand, what on earth did I do to be part of this moment, this pristine moment? When I read that, I think, uh, again, of Moses when he um, makes a very similar statement when God tells him, you're going to be the deliverer who's going to go to Egypt and free God's people from their bondage. Moses responded and said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And, of course, we know at the end of Deuteronomy, we hear that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Well, we're seeing that same humility in Elizabeth um, as she just is in awe at this. I think there's two things that are going through Elizabeth's mind. I think on the one hand, she is recognizing that this is a hugely significant moment in redemptive history, that this meeting of the wombs is occurring. And secondly, she's just in absolute awe and wonder that she has been privileged to be allowed to be part of it. Now, a couple of things that she says in that statement that I want to bring out. She says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord... Now, if you look at the word Lord, you'll see that your, that your editors have capitalized it. And what that means is they're, 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 they're using a very specific meaning of that word. The underlying word is kurios. In the Greek, it's a very common word. It can be used for a polite greeting. It can be used for a human master, or it can be used for God. It's quite often used for Jesus throughout the New Testament. And the way it is being used here, it is being used for God. Just look down to the 45th verse, you'll see a direct uh, statement that using the same word and meaning God by it. Now, here's my question. How does she know this? How did she come upon this knowledge? How does she understand that the, that the child that is just developing in Mary's womb is not just a great man, not just a godly man as her son is, but how does she know that he is God to the point where she would call him my Lord? Well, a lot of people would say, well, Mary told her. Remember that formal greeting that they had? Mary has told her everything about what happened and including what the angel said that he will be the son of the most high. Well, you know something, that may be true, but I I, I don't know if, if I can accept that as the reason. Because after all, Elizabeth is a Jew. Elizabeth is from the house of Aaron. She's the, the wife of a priest. And she lives in amongst a people who are fiercely monotheistic. They're the only people on earth that are monotheistic. And you're going to tell me that a teenage girl is going to come in and say that, that the angel told me that the, the, that, the, that the baby in my womb is God in the flesh. I think she would struggle with that. You see, we have 2,000 years of understanding what the Trinity is and the Christological councils that came along that defined this Chalcedon to be you know, specific. We have that and we understand the Trinity, but Elizabeth didn't. So how did she know Jesus was God? Brothers and sisters, it was the Holy Spirit who told her. It's the Holy Spirit who revealed that to her. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes it known to her that the baby in the womb of Mary is God in human form. Just like, you remember later on, much later, but out of Matthew 18, you remember when Jesus asked his disciples... Um, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered for them and of course said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember what Jesus said to him? He said, he said blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven revealed it to you. It was a supernatural revelation. And so that's the same reason, at least in my mind, that Elizabeth recognizes that this child is God in the womb of a peasant girl from Nazareth. 
There's one other thing that I want to bring out in that verse, and it's kind of a nuance, but we'll talk about it later when we make the transition into communion. And that's the way she says, my Lord. That's almost a code word that that takes us back to something that David said in Psalm 110, very heavily um, quoted in the New Testament. In fact, let me read it to you as Mark quotes it. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That is talking about the Messiah. And you remember, of course, what Thomas said when after doubting that Jesus was raised from the dead, he finally saw the resurrected Lord. What did he say? My Lord and my God. In awe, Elizabeth is saying, who am I that I would be part of this extraordinary, pristine moment in redemptive history that my son would be in the presence of my Lord, our Lord. Well, then she is going to go ahead and tell Mary what actually happened to her in her womb. Luke's already told us, but I told you we were going to talk about it more in the 44th verse. Look what she says. For behold... That's just a word that says, hey, listen, I'm about to tell you something really important, you know, kind of perk up. Pay attention to this. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, we're not told what kind of leap that is, but there's one thing we do know. It was not the ordinary turning and kicking and prodding of a six-month-old fetus. It, it, it wasn't that. Whatever it was, was an extraordinary demonstrative expression at exactly the right time that indicated that this child was reacting to the presence of my Lord. So the question arises, how does a six-month-old fetus know that? How does a six-month-old fetus know that he is in the presence of God in the flesh? Well, there are a lot of people who believe that he had cognizant knowledge, even at that age. Even at that age that he heard what Elizabeth heard and leaped for joy as a result of that. I, I don't know. Um, I don't think the text supports that. It, it's a nice thought. But I, actually, I, I don't think it's John the Baptist. I think it puts too much focus on John the Baptist, or who will later on be the baptize, baptizer. But I think it puts too much focus on him and not enough focus on the Holy Spirit, because that's what I think we're seeing, folks. What I think we are seeing when this baby leaps is the joy, the unfiltered joy of heaven coming out as the Holy Spirit through a stimulus and impact causes that baby literally to leap with joy. Because remember, Mary is, I'm not Mary, but Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit at this time. As we read back in the 15th verse of this chapter, the angel telling Zechariah, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Well, that is happening right here. We are seeing the Holy Spirit who has filled Elizabeth expressing the joy of heaven. In fact, brothers and sisters, I'm, 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 I'm going to put it in a slightly different perspective. I think what we are seeing is an indication of what John the Baptist was set here on earth to do. He's the herald to announce the coming of the Christ child, the one who runs along the chariot and shouts, the king is coming, the king is coming. And I think this is an indication of that. Remember also what the angel said to Zechariah. He will be filled with, I'm sorry, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what I think we're seeing here is the outpouring of the joy of the triune God 
over the incarnation, the conception of the Son in the flesh. And we're going to see that later on when Jesus is born. Remember, the angel is going to appear and he is going to say, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And then all of a sudden, heaven's going to open up. They can't contain the joy of heaven. It's going to spill over into this dimension. The heavenly hosts are going to appear and they are, we're going to read, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest brothers and sisters heaven is so filled with joy over redemption and atonement and salvation and the fact that God is finally going to be reconciled with those he made in his image those who he loves that I believe the Holy Spirit is expressing that joy and John the Baptist simply leaps for joy I don't believe he knows what he's doing but I believe that he is filled with the spirit even at this moment, even as a six-month fetus. So, I think that is what we're actually seeing as the baby leaps for joy. Now, that leaves us with just one other verse, just one other verse, and and it kind of switches gears a little bit. Um, Elizabeth is going to turn back to Mary, and she's, again, she's blessed Mary, she's blessed Jesus, she's talked about how blessed she is, she's talked about the joy in her womb as these two wombs meet each other, and, and now she's going to turn back to Mary, and this is what she says in the 45th verse, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she. And and she's talking to Mary. So I don't think there's any doubt that those words are directed at Mary. She's already said you're the most blessed woman on the face of the planet. And now she gets specific. She says, blessed is she who believes. Blessed is your belief. But I want you to notice something. Notice the way that she frames it. Earlier, when she was speaking directly and exclusively to Mary, she said, blessed are you among women. Here she says, blessed is she. It's a far more general statement. And in fact, it's a statement that we can interpret as if she were talking to every she who has ever lived. Blessed is all the she, or blessed are all the she's who believe And I don't think it's just limited to the she's. I think the he's would fit in here too as as Proverbs echoes. Blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. And that's exactly what she is saying about Mary. Blessed is the one who trusts, who believes, who has faith in the Lord. I think we can interpret this belief in two ways. And and now we're sort of sliding into how this affects us as well, because this is a general statement. First of all, I think that there is there is a a blessing of belief. There is the blessing of belief. In other words, belief itself is a blessing. We, We talked about this last week that. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You're not going to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We talked about Lazarus in the tomb. Dead, dead, dead. Completely dead. There's no way he can raise himself. And in like ways, Paul says, of me spiritually, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so therefore, belief is not something that comes out of a dead person. Belief is something that is gifted, that is given to us by God. So there is a blessing of belief. That's how we come to know Christ. That's how come we come to choose him. It's because we are given that blessing. But then there's a blessing from belief. It's almost like when you're saved, you're like this little baby, right? Born again. And, and we're almost like babies in Christ. And, you know, we have nothing to do with our own birth. We, we don't decide who our parents are going to be or when we're going to be born. I mean, that's all done for us as a product of grace. But then our parents take us and put us in the playpen with a whole bunch of other kids. Now, once we're in the playpen, we we have a boundary around us. We're never going to lose our salvation. We didn't gain it in the first place. But within that playpen, there's lots of things that we can decide either to do or not do. As Christians, brothers and sisters, we can foster our belief. 
We can augment it. We can work at it. We can pursue it. We can pursue God. Or we can decide to simply play in the playground and ignore everything and just wait for Jesus to come home again. But you see, there is a blessing from belief. God loves those who believe in him. And let me tell you something. It's impossible to please him without belief. It is impossible. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So in other words, unless our belief is growing, unless it is something that we focus on, that we bolster in one way or another, we're not going to please God because he loves belief. And there's consequences for belief. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be added up to you. Okay, what's most important is that you trust God for who he is. That you believe in what he says. That you look for the fulfillment of all the promises that he has made and live your life accordingly. You see, Mary was in Nazareth and she believed, but she didn't stay there. She arose with haste and made her way, put action, put, put some legs and feet to her faith so that this great moment of these two wombs could occur. Well, just the very end of that statement, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. First of all, I just want to point out once again the extraordinary faith of Mary. She has shown the tremendous faith. She's put that faith into action. Not only did she believe that as a virgin she's going to have a baby, not only did she believe that he is going to be the son of God in the flesh, not only did she believe that he is going to take the throne of David, but she put that action into, that faith into action by heading down to Hebron so that she could spend time with her relative Elizabeth. She has exhibited that extraordinary faith. And once again, I just want to remind you what I said earlier, that we don't want to deify her. We're not going to call her all of the heretical things that Roman Catholicism has. But that doesn't mean we just ignore her as a very powerful, important example for us in Scripture, because she is. She was a, a, a righteous young girl among all of the people that, were, that she was chosen to be the mother of Christ in the flesh. But I want to focus in right here at the end on, on one word there, and that's the fulfillment. And I just want you to consider this for a moment. There is a powerful principle here that I don't want us to miss throughout this entire narrative. And that is, yes, Mary believed. But what if she didn't? What would happen if she didn't believe? If the angel told her all of this and her response was like Zechariah's, oh goodness, you know, virgins don't have babies. Show me a sign. What would have happened? Would Christ have not been born? Would redemption have not come? Would God's providential will have been thwarted? Of course not. Of course it wouldn't. She still would have been overshadowed, just like when Zechariah didn't believe. We talked about it earlier. When he didn't believe, John the Baptist was still born. He's not going to stop his redemptive plan. His primary will continues because it is his perfect and sovereign will. And if Mary had decided, I'm not going to believe in any of this, it wouldn't have stopped God from overshadowing and for her to have had the same child. Jesus would have been bored. Redemption was going to happen. What was the difference in her belief? Blessing, folks. She was blessed because she believed. Zechariah was not blessed because he didn't believe. And, and, and that's a very powerful principle that we need to realize. And, and that's the point I want to make as we come to the end of this part of the story. I want to make a, a point that, and, and I made it last week, I'm going to make it again this week, that we are very similar to these two women, those of us who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and born again. Talked about being overshadowed and the broader meaning of that word. I hope you didn't think I was 
saying that we were in the same way overshadowed as Mary was. Of course we're not. That was unique in all of history. But we are regenerated. We are born again. We are overshadowed. We are changed by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the same thing that happened to Mary. And now we watch it happen to Elizabeth. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're a child of God, if you have been reborn by the Holy Spirit of God, then he takes your old soul, takes it out, puts a new one in that has, is fireproofed and a worthy receptacle for the Holy Spirit of God to live in. What an amazing thought that is. So we are filled with the Holy Spirit in very similar ways that Elizabeth was. So these lessons apply to us. First of all, the privilege that that reflects, which we'll talk about in a moment. But secondly, that brothers and sisters, you did not generate your own belief. You didn't get here because you're a good person. You didn't get here because you were smarter and brighter and more righteous than the rest of the world that is rejecting Christ and heading for hell. You're here because God blessed you with belief. Now, is that where it's going to end? You see, Mary, of all the billions of women, was chosen to be the mother of Christ in the flesh. Elizabeth, of all the billions of of women, was chosen to be the one who would have the forerunner, the herald, and she's right here at this particular moment. Of all the billions of people on earth right now, you have been chosen to know God. And it is such a privilege. It is a privilege to know God. What are you going to do about it? Are you just simply going to be set free in the, in the play print, play pen and, and play away the rest of your life? Or else are you going to pursue him with diligence? To foster belief because God blesses those who believe. So you say, so how do I do that? How do I foster my own belief? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it's nothing new. And I say it almost every sermon. Every time we come to this, it is the foundation of how you grow in Christ. And that is to pour yourself into what we call the means of grace. Pour yourself into the study of God's word. And I don't mean just a casual reading so that you can say, yeah, I read a chapter this week. I'm talking about getting yourself a study Bible. Find a good commentary on the book that you're reading. Delve into it with detail. Join our Bible studies on Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, because we go deeply into each one of those books. Or do it on your own. Or find some, some truly um, conservative Bible teaching and preaching person on YouTube. John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, those guys are great. But... Pour yourself into learning about God's word because that's how you know, learn to know God. Pour yourself into your prayer life. Lock yourself in your closet and pray when you can. But if you can't do that all the time, pray constantly. Constantly have a conversation with the Lord. I I do that all the time. There's a constant dialogue going on in my head. Lord, what do you think about this? What, What should I do here? Constantly in prayer with the Lord contacting him in that way, worshiping. Now, if you can be here like you are this morning, it is wonderful. Some of you can't be here, but as soon as you can, you should be straining at the bits, looking for a way to return to corporate worship. I mean, you can worship on your own, but it's not the same thing as gathering together as believers. In any way that you can, as quickly as you can, with the haste that Mary showed, Get yourself back to church so that you can worship the Lord along with your brothers and sisters. And there's other means of grace. But this is where we sort of kind of make a transition from this story to what we're going to do, which is take communion. Because that also is a means of grace. It is the time that the Holy Spirit walks in our midst and quickens us to his presence. That we have a direct communication with My Lord, that's that phrase I want you to remember. What a glorious phrase to have on your lips and in your mind as we go to to communion. As Elizabeth says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What a privilege she had to know that the baby in Mary's womb was my Lord. What a privilege you have 
to come before the Lord at his table and take his communion and to be able to call him and recognize those elements. They don't turn into him in some mystical way. They're still bread and they're still the fruit of the wine, but they represent the body and blood of my Lord. And you are blessed among all the people of the world. You are blessed to know him as my Lord. What a privilege. What a thought to have on your mind as you prepare it along with your heart for this communion. So let's pray, and then we'll take that communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful stories of Scripture. We thank you for the revelation of the Holy Spirit's work here. We thank you for the beautiful pictures you've given us of Mary and Elizabeth, this this meeting of the wombs of the exuberant reaction of the baby in Elizabeth's womb, of the, of the Holy Spirit's activity in that, and then the faith that we all are blessed with, but you also allow us to pursue or to ignore. Lord, I pray that we will all pursue it. We'll make it one of the, one of the true foci or focuses of our life to grow, to ask you constantly that you would grow us in faith. And now, dear Lord, as we <clears throat> take your communion, we ask that you would bless us. We know that you are here. We know that you are in our midst in the spirit. And we pray that it will be a time of edification and growth for those who take it. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you from First Corinthians 11. And If you've ever wondered why I do this, why every time we take communion, I start out with um, what's known as fencing the table, um, to warn you that if you don't know Jesus, if you're not his disciples, if you really cannot look at these elements and say in the same way that Elizabeth says, my Lord, and know that he is your Lord, know that you know him and that he knows you, and that you have given your life to him. Paul warns us about taking this, this supper this communion in an unworthy manner. It, it is, you know, there's a, a, a desire in our world to be inclusive, all-inclusive, and it's almost a sin if you're not all-inclusive. Well, this is not all-inclusive, and it's not set up that way, and it's not the way Jesus wanted it. It is exclusive for his disciples. It is a time where his disciples come before him. He walks amongst us in the Spirit. He quickens us to that presence, and he grows us in him. It is a means of grace. Now, if you know the Lord, if you love him, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then whether or not you're a member of this church or of a different denomination, brother, sister, you're welcome here because it's not our table. Usually we do have a table here. It's his. But here's what Paul said as we prepare our hearts for this communion. Starting in the 23rd verse of the 11th chapter. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, it's the cellophane. Reading from the 25th verse then, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He goes on to say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you. Uh, Where do we start? Thank you for the miraculous way that you were created in that, that, um, that womb of Mary. Thank you for the beautiful stories that we have of your birth and your childhood. Thank you for your ministry and the ethics that you taught us. Thank you for the miracles that you worked. Thank you, dear Lord, that you loved us so much that regardless of the machinations of the devil of trying to tempt you in the desert and then to cause you to back away from the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, you didn't. Through your love and mercy and grace, you went there and you suffered for us. Thank you. Thank you, dear Lord, that you took my sins upon you as part of that suffering, and that I, as much as anyone else, nailed you to that cross, that my sins you paid for and you suffered for each and every one of them. The sins that I so flippantly sometimes say, well, thank you that I am redeemed and thank you that I am saved by grace. Thank you that those sins cost you deeply, eternally, as you hung on that cross. But thank you, dear Lord, that that's not where you stayed, that you didn't stay in that grave, that you were raised from that grave. Alternately, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all involved with that resurrection, just to prove that everything you said you were, you were. Everything you said you did, you did. And that the sacrifice you made on our behalf was accepted by God as an effective sacrifice to redeem us and atone us for our sins. And finally, dear Lord, thank you that you lived a perfect life, that you went to that cross without blemish or spot, so that I could be clothed with your righteousness, so that we could be clothed with the robes that you have set aside for us, those robes of brilliant white linen that we will use and stand before you as we praise you and glorify you and thank you forever and ever and ever. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful redemption you have given us. Lord, I know that every generation who looks at the world around them says, Maranatha, Lord, come soon. The world is in such a mess. The world is so upside down. The world has forgotten you and turned its back on you. And every generation says, dear Lord, please come back. But I think in doing so, quite often we forget that we're leaving children and grandchildren behind. They will suffer from the evils that we don't confront. So help us, dear Lord, to be that church crying out against evils like abortion, like the immorality that we see around us, the absolute insanity that typifies a nation that you have given over to itself. Lord, we ask for revival, even as we sang earlier, that you would send that revival, that you would bless us rather than pass that judgment upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.